לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, שלום! From various different places, this is Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamet in Highland Park, New Jersey, joining me from Long Island, Rabbi Barry Chesler. And from way, way up in Woodstock, New York this week, we have Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, usually of Manhattan, but now Woodstock, New York. Shalom, it's great to see you all. Shalom, everybody. A little bit, a little bit of uh, get out of the city, get a little bit of fresh air. It's very lovely. I'll be here for a couple of weeks. Enjoy it. We envy you. Woodstock is great. And so is the Torah. The Torah is great. <laughs> Even better than Woodstock. This week, Parshat Korach. Korach. We want to start by just asking the question, who is this guy? What is this guy? Can you give me a description, your take on him? Barry, I want to start with you. So Korach is a man with a mission. And he's not satisfied with his place in society and thinks that his place in society is to do what Moshe or Aharon do. And so he comes with his band of merry pranksters, I guess the original band of merry pranksters. I'm in Woodstock after all. After all. <laughs> and um, certainly verbally assaults Moshe and Aharon with his claim for leadership, complaining that Moshe and Aharon have took too much upon themselves, and that he and his cohort deserve a chance. And more than a chance, I think they want the perks that go with being the leaders. So what occurred to me when we were talking before we started recording is that um, Korach is, has a, a specific argument that I think makes sense and maybe makes sense to us today that everything that happens to the Israelites is translated through Moshe. God appears to Moshe, and Moshe translates as a word for the people. And with this invisible God, everyone has to rely on Moshe. And we've seen over and over again in the Torah that God does certain things so that the people will trust Moshe as the leader. And Korach is not having any of it. I think that one could argue, as we were talking before, that every society needs strata of leaders that have to do certain things. And Korach might be amenable for that, but the only one who says who the leaders are going to be are the ones that God conveniently chose, but I can't talk to God myself. So, so, so in other words, you're, you're, you have a little bit of sympathy for him. I think we have to. I think that the one thing that we learn as we get older is that hardly anyone is purely evil. Everyone has some grain, you know, in our context, we would say the Pintal Yid, the little Jewish spark, but it has some kind of human element, that Selim Elohim. So, so even Korach has a Selim Elohim, and... and and even in the argument that he is uh, the claim, there's some legitimacy to the claim. I don't know, Jeremy. What are you? Are you? 
I'm, I'm, I'm half sympathetic here. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'm half sympathetic. Well, that's pathetic. But first of all, huh? That's pathetic, half sympathetic. <laughs> half sympathetic, half sim, but mostly just pathetic. Uh, I, I would say that the, the question at least partly revolves around whether or not Korach believes his own speech. Okay, does he read his own press clippings? Does he believe his own speech? The, the simple semantics, the shot of his speech, are somewhat difficult for an American in the 20th and 21st century not to resonate with a little bit. He, he, says, to, he says to those you know, leaders um, who are enjoying being the boss, who, why do you lord it over? Why do you raise yourself up over the community of Israel? And the community of Israel is what this is all about. Now, the, the truth is that Moshe Rabbeinu, throughout the Torah, has demonstrated himself to be an enormously devoted uh, uh, servant of God, servant of the people, okay? It's your favorite thing. Yes. The Gemara and Tractate Yoma talks about the Kohanim. There's, a, there's a, um, a, 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 an analysis in the Talmud there about is, are, the, are the Kohanim Shluche de Rachmana or Shluche Didan? Are they are they the human community's emissaries or are they God's emissaries? And of course, the answer is kind of both. And Moshe is that exactly. Okay, he he, he works for God. He works for the people, and um, and so we can't read the Torah and think, wow, you know, Korach is right. Uh, he's actually just just uh, you know uh, Queen Elizabeth just enjoying all of his own wealth. No, he is he is a good servant, but. Karak does ask a good question, and I think societies in general are helped. If you have people ask the question, are the leaders um, really working for the betterment of everybody, or does the self-interest and the politics and the, and the retain their own position come to take over? So if he believes what he's really saying, maybe we have to listen a little bit. Uh, it's just that the Torah certainly treats him as a demagogue who's just saying it to get ahead. I, I, let me I, let me take a, a, a less uh, sympathetic view here, which is that um, no Korah, there, there, there's a lot to be critical of Korah. I, I may, maybe you're, you're agreeing here. I'm, I'm less sympathetic to him. Uh, it's all about power for him. Uh, it's all about the self for him. We we know people like that. Uh, we we our our congregations, our communities are constituted with people who who really are out for their own aggrandizement, indeed, I would say. Uh, not us presently, but many rabbis, you know, behave as if they're the only one around. Um, and, and have what they think is a legitimate claim for leadership, um, and they're just not cut out for it, or there's something that's off. And, and I feel that there's something that's just not right about him. He, so the, question, the question is, how do we know that Korach is off? Yeah. So I, I'll make one suggestion, is that his argument, which appears to be an argument from democracy, is a narrow one, because it's not that he wants everyone to be in charge. He wants himself to be in charge. Right. He accepts that there are going to be Levites who are important. He wants to be that Levite, and he doesn't say anything about the rest of Israel. Why should Levi be separated out from the people if everyone truly is a member of the holy community? 
that, that's a great observation. I want to I want to just add one more thing to that to that style of thinking. You know, we're we're the three of us are of course conservative rabbis, and uh, and we're we we've been educated on the knees of um, among other things being able to note the seams in S-E-A-M-S of the Torah and notice how stories are put together. And this is one of the clear examples. Karach, the story of the Parsha of Karach is one of the clear examples where you have some multiple strands that probably were not originally part of one story that are woven together. And you have the Datan Ba'aviram and the On Ben Pelet story. They are portrayed as being part of Karach's band. But, but who are they? They're B'nai Reuven. They are the children of the of Jacob's physical firstborn. They're the tribe that seems like it ought to have a kind of primogeniture, but has been displaced. So then if, if, if Datan and Abiram are also fighting against Moshe, uh, then it's a straight-up power struggle. They don't have a, uh, a claim about democracy and the fundamental uh, equivalent of uh, the equivalency of holiness among all the people, they say, well, wait a minute, we're the Reubenites. The Reubenites are the firstborn. We got jobbed. We lost our positions. And that's, I think, uh, a really clear example of how what's going on here is uh, an objection to Moshe's power, um, and the people who, who don't have so much power tend to want it. I wonder, by the way, you know, they say about the U.S. Senate, is, is filled with 100 people who are all running for president, right? Like, uh, it, there's, a, there's a way in which, you know, being powerless stinks, but being powerful, but not really the most powerful, can be hard in its own way. Everybody's want to want to scoot a little bit higher up the ladder, and, and that's correct. Like, Rafa B'nai Levi, you got a good job. You got a better job than almost anybody else. Let but me, that's not, let me that's give you the Canadian analogy, which is, all the members of the government, the, the party, they want to be in the cabinet. All the people in the cabinet, they want to be the prime minister, right? Yeah. They are, they are vying for that. Well, you know, and it takes, a, it takes a, an incredible person to understand his, her place within, within the structures of, of leadership. And, and, and here, I think that, you know, if we could just pivot to, to Moses as leader here, you know, last week we, we had our big debate about you know, Moses and, and whether or not he, he rose to that challenge. Um, I think he does. I think he, he, there's a difference here. There's a real difference here. He, he, you can, you can compare the way he behaves last week, which was, I don't know what to do, like falling on the face. And, and there is a lot of resolute behavior here. By Yipol Al-Panav, by immediately, by he says, get up there, we'll have a face-off. It's you and me in center ice. You bring your fire pens. I'll bring. <laughs> Aaron will bring his fire pens. We're gonna we're gonna tip off. You know, sorry, baseball, but basketball, right? We're gonna we're gonna fight it out. We're gonna see who's standing at the end, right? But you know, note how different this is from just a couple of weeks ago, when Moshe said in, in the end of Bahalotcha. Moshe said, I can't do this alone anymore. I mean, you, you have to say that these two stories have a really different vibe. This story says, listen, we've got a stable order. Me and my brother, we're at the head of it. And people need to know their place in the pyramid. Uh, the story in Bahalotcha a few, a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, Moshe says, I can't do this alone anymore. No. I need 70 people who will have some of the gift that I have. And you, you, if, I, if I were you know, not inheriting the Torah, but, but starting anew, I might say something like, 
Korach, here's what you should say. You should say, remember two weeks ago when you needed 70 elders to participate in prophecy? I'm one of them. Can, can I be one of them? Um, and, and then I think, you know, it would have been a totally, the spiritual vibe would have been totally different. So that would have been a more of a spiritual claim. This is a political claim. This is, I mean, a, this is raw, raw politics here. It's a, it's, a, it's a grab for power. And it's precisely in that arena that, uh, that God demonstrates to Moses and to Korah who, who in fact is in power, who, who, who is in control of things. Because what happens in the story, they, they gather, they have their face off, and, and Moses then says, uh, Shimuna b'nei Levi, uh, and uh, he uh, calls Korach and gets each one with their fire pans, and he badlu mitoch ha'ida karaga. I'm going to destroy them. And in fact, the earth opens up. So, one of the things that's great about, about Moshe's answer and, and is matched in the Haftarah, that both Shmuel, first of all, we have Jewish people, Jewish people are, we're rabbis, we know, we can say this with all affection, Jewish people can be hard. They can be hard people to work for. They're hard, hard to satisfy. And Moshe and Shmuel, which is the Haftarah for, for this Parsha, uh, come out as, as being rejected in some level by at least some of the people. And they both say the same thing, which is, I didn't enrich myself. Okay, I didn't, I didn't take one donkey from them. I've never stolen your sheep. I've never, I've never tried to exploit you for my own personal gain. That, to me, is a real symbol for when, when leaders are serving the people or enriching themselves. And I think that we can see whether it's, I mean, I'm, you know, my own politics or whatever. I think we see some people uh, seeking public office to enrich themselves. And even people whom I absolutely love leave public office and enrich themselves in a huge way, it's not so pretty. So what we could add also is that those words, when Moshe says them, are actually then a critique on Korach. And that's another thing then that might be wrong with Korach, is that he was all about himself. And that he was interested in what he could get from the job and not what he could give the job. And certainly with Shmuel, who at the end of his life is still concerned that the king is not going to work out, that the true king of Israel is God, and the people have chosen otherwise, is critiquing the king, who often existed only to enrich himself. You know, so with the, advance to the to the, the the crisis moment, the miracle moment. Uh, it's it's a remarkable miracle. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, all Korach's people and their possessions. They went down alive into Sheol. It's, it's a pretty remarkable moment. So you were talking about politics earlier, Elliot, and political brawls do not have elegant solutions. And this is hardly an elegant solution. This is crushing a rebellion and making sure that nothing remains of it. And Moshe is not going to be tested like this ever again. Yeah, so it has to be definitive. But he has put this down in no uncertain terms. Right. Now, my, my, one of my bar mitzvah kids for, for this week, we got, we got a bar mitzvah on Chesed this week, uh, two pair of twins actually, and, um, and 
one of the boys, you know, was wrestling with this question and, and he was very frustrated with my somewhat circular answer, which is, well, how do we really know that Korach is such a bad guy? Because of the end of the story and the Torah tells this story, I, I would sum it up with a phrase from the liturgy, it's mashpil ge'im It's making the arrogant go down. Korach wanted to go up. And the whole point of the story is that he went down. My, my Barbizvoy, Gabriel Abrahami, was very frustrated with me because I said, you know, the Torah, you don't have any access to what Korach, act, what he actually was, except insofar as the Torah tells us the story of an arrogant guy getting smushed, getting, getting pushed down into the ground. And he said, but, but I need to know more about the, the character. I said, well, we don't have any more about the character. We only have what happens to him. What's curious here is that how does the Torah describe a person who's reached the end of his life in a good way? That he sleeps with his fathers. And so we can appreciate then how forceful it must be if you go down to Shaul alive, you don't even get that last touch of God that you're going to sleep with your fathers. You, you see the full horror right in front of you. Interesting. It's the same expression that Jacob uses when he uh, hears of Joseph, you know, the Avel Shaola. I will descend to my my Shaola, yeah, right. Shaola, alive. And and you know the scene. I I love the the midrash, Rabbi Barbarchana, who says, "I was once traveling in the desert." And I came across the place where Korach is buried. And I put my ear to the ground. And I heard them saying, Moses is right, and the Torah is right, and we are liars. We are liars. And what's so brilliant about that, in addition to the fact that he's such a wonderful character, is that hell is having to admit for the rest of eternity that you were wrong. (laughs) Some people get that hell on earth. And some Um, people get the hell on earth, yes. So the mouth swallowing up Korach is one of the 10 things that the rabbis say were created Ben Hashem on the sixth day. And I find it a fascinating idea that a lot of things that we would otherwise consider miraculous, the rabbis thought were embedded in creation. And I'm not quite sure why this particular thing had to be created at the beginning. Right, as if it were foretold, not only in the context of the Israelites leaving Egypt, but already from the creation of Adam and Chava, yeah. that this was coming down the pike. Yeah, what's that about? I'm not sure what to make of it. It's, it's odd. So I, the idea that miracles uh, are uh, some things that unfold within creation, it's Maimonides in the Guard of Perplexed, Talks about um, how you know how to understand miracles. Miracles are 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 if you understand them as intervention in history, it, it throws off some other kinds of complexities. But if you are uh, in tune with the world and nature, and know that anomalies occur and that they've been embedded in creation from the beginning, and you are uh, astute with the effulgence of God that you are attuned with the mind of God, you know when things are going to unfold. So Maimonides would explain the, the, 
the miracle as well Moses it's it's a function of his prophecy and he knew at the precise moment that this was going to happen because it was uh, embedded in creation mm-hmm. um, let me let me go to to another point which which might be germane to our time which is so uh, there is there is some cataclysm and plague that breaks out in the in the people Moshe then says to or uh, to Aaron um, uh, take uh, uh, take the fire pen, put it in, in fire on the altar, from the altar, in, add incense and take it quickly to the community and make expiation for them. For wrath has gone forth from the Lord, the plague has begun. Uh, right? So, you know, I heard, I heard an interesting one way at the beginning of our, our uh coronavirus experience here, uh, there was uh, one rabbi who said that you need to be reciting the Ketoret passages as a way of, as a way of pushing away the plague. And, and, you know, aside from the magical components of it, obviously they're trying to invoke, you know, this moment that here Aaron takes uh, incense and the incense is to ward off the plague. The plague is, an un- unleashing of chaos in the pl- in the camp, and to restore order, you need some kind of way of of evoking that in 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 a, in a gaseous ether that will penetrate throughout the whole camp. So, so playing you know, Fauci? what's that? Tell Fauci how to do this? Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't know. But in a sense, the plague never goes away because they have to take the machtot and bang them into copper and adorn the altar with them right. so that they always remember this. See, that part, what you just said, Barry, is, is to me, um, one, of the, one of the really, um, in some sense, challenging, I, I, ha- I think I have a sense on, on what the Bible means as pshat, but on an, a, a midrashic level, I think a really stimulating part of the story. So the, the Karach and the 250 bad guys, they took their fire pans, um, by the way, obviously, they had a whole store of fire pans, so they were, you know, another thing that one might say indicates that there was about their own, their own power grab is they were ready. They, they went to Home Depot, and they got 250 fire pans to get ready for this challenge. And what happens to them is that they actually get assimilated back into what is most holy. Now, I think on one level, Pshat is when... When anything that is impure touches the mikdash, touches the, the mizbeach or whatever, it becomes sanctified. So right. maybe you say something like, even though this should never have touched the mizbeach, it did touch mizbeach, and therefore nothing else can happen. It has to, it remains kadosh. And there's any number of examples in, in, in halacha, you know, such and such a sacrifice is, is, shouldn't be brought up, but since it, since it was brought to the mizbeach, it can't be taken down. It has to be offered even though it was, it was improper. And so maybe it's like that. But I think that in addition to that, uh, there is maybe some way and that the Torah is saying, you know what, we're actually not giving up on these people. Um, we're actually wondering, and maybe it's a purely negative thing, that, that the copper, the copper on, the, on the Mizbeach is a reminder to the Israelites about how bad rebellion is, but I don't know, I'm inclined to be nicer, or be inclined to be a little more positive and say, the copper on the Mizbeach is the reminder that no matter, that even out of bad motives, you get reabsorbed into good purpose. Um, there's a kind of redemptive quality to saying 
that Korach is one of the worst villains in the Torah, and even he is ultimately um, uh, touching the Mizbeach, and it, it maybe points to some some uh, way back, some reintegration into the to the cause of goodness. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of sympathy here, and there's there's also, you know, it's admonition. There's there's a multivocal nature to this symbol. This the, the idea that the things become holy, and therefore you can't discard them. Yeah, we accept that. That's probably the pshat, as you say. But there's also, you know, the the people are going on this journey and they have to be reminded. They're being reminded of the mana. They're going to be reminded of the mate. There are things that are always going to be placed in the in the holy precincts that are reminders of this journey. And and you know what? It's, it, it's obviously not a, 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 a straight line. It's a very bumpy road. This journey was a bumpy road. We have to remember that also. Very. So the the signs are a question to us that we can't always begin again. That everywhere we go, we're taking an important part of our past with us to remind us of where we were. And I like what you said earlier, Jeremy. So at least if we're not going to resurrect Korach, we can rehabilitate him. And it, it, it's a reminder to us that everyone is part of the community, and we have to find ways of ingress and not just egress. We're very quick, both politically and even in religious spheres, to want to kick people out. And we have to look for ways to invite them in. And one of the things that comes through in this Parsha is the amount of Zarut, of strangeness. We have the Ishzar who's offering the the, the bad incense offering and the Zar who is not allowed to enter into the Mishkan. And one person's strangeness could be another person's idiosyncrasy. In a religious culture, of course, we have to have boundaries, but we have to make sure that our, we're not building walls that don't have gates, that gates have to open out, but they also have to open in. And, and the message for us, I think, is to find those ways to bring people in so that, like even Koach, they can be rehabilitated. Right. Well, let's, let's end with the, the way that uh, Pirkei Avot uh, frames this every machloket, every argument that is for the sake of heaven, uh, which we're going to translate as will have, will yield some kind of eternal or yield some kind of uh, end to it. It will, it will have a, a, a product to it that will be sustaining. And things, arguments that are not for the sake of him, and they give the examples. What is the machloket she l'shem shemaim? So machloket hila v'shamai. Hila and shamai argued for the sake of heaven. And they see, the rabbis see, that Korach and his cohort are not arguing for the sake of heaven. And um, this is, you know, it's, it's a, a teaching that we like to go back to. Um, that there are certain things, the arguments that edify you, and there are arguments that tear you down. And I think between Hillel and Shammai, they were still friends. They they had their differences, obviously, but their arguments edified each other um, and uh, were not destructive. How do you read that Mish- Mishnah, Jeremy? Well, I think that I think that Machloket in Judaism we have a vast and wonderful celebration 
of disagreement without communal, you know, destructive communal divisions. We want there to be achdut, we want there to be a sense of unity of all of Am Yisrael, but we don't think that we all have to agree on everything to, to attain it. In fact, obviously rabbinic literature is a, a whole literature of, you know, Rabbi Yehuda says this and Rabbi Meir says that and they don't agree. So what we want, because the problems of life that really matter are not obvious, there are multiple views on them, we want people to be de dedicated to a common overall vision and each of them have a, a bit of the truth, right? So Hillel and Shammai, it's, it's said, one of the, one of the uh, little midrashim about this is that the, the law follows Hillel in this world and in the Olam Haba will follow Shammai because each of them have some piece of the truth. And so if you have a, a machloket that is truly for the Shem Shammayim, truly for the sake of heaven, then it's so falahit kayem, it will endure, and the people will keep on arguing because they're both kind of right, and they both have pieces of a bigger truth. This sheina the shem shamayim, which really is not for a good purpose, is korach v'chol adato, korach and all of his band, because as, as uh, clearly the Jewish tradition, you know, whatever, whatever sympathetic way you might have of reading korach's claim, at least the, the rhetoric of his, his claim, uh, we treat him as being about power in the ways that we've discussed in this in this conversation, and uh, and that cannot endure because there can't be any productive uh, 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 outcome of that because it's really just about himself. We're not about aiming towards higher goal. We're just about trying to grab power. So Helen Shammai, like machloket disagreement is good. It makes you think. It shows you. It shows you the aspects of the of the question that you hadn't thought of before, and everybody's got their point. If you're just fighting over who gets to be the big dog, that's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to teach you anything. It's not going to edify you. Excellent. Barry. So just to add on to what Jeremy said so beautifully, is that the machloket of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai endures and has no end because those positions are valid positions. And in any generation, one might choose one or the other, but both coexist, right? As a matter of policy, you can only do one thing, but as a matter of debate, you can take either side. With Korach, the participant in the controversy doesn't exist. Korach himself sees to exist, and with him goes that controversy. And so it's of, ultimately of no value because it doesn't survive him. The things that really matter are the things that survive us. That's why I think we invest in our children. That's why we invest in communities. And that's why we invest in our, in our ideas. You know, ultimately what we say is that the Torah is eternal, not any of us. Well, I would say that's why we invest in, in Torah. And, you know, I, I would include a machloka l'shem shemaim, uh, our conversation. You know, sometimes we have different uh, views on things. Uh, but we're, we're really all about reaching for the same thing. And Jeremy, you said it. Well, you know, we, we all share a, a part of a truth that's part, that's, it's a larger truth. There's, you know, when we, when we debate passionately about things that really matter, it's because there is a larger truth that we're, we're, we're really reaching for. And the larger truth uh, is that uh, we are together with the eternal truth of, of Torah and going to enter into the eternal world of Shabbat in a couple of days, to have a glimpse of that eternity and, we miss being at Machane Ramah. This would have been staff week, the first week of the Tzavad. This would have been Shabbat Korach. One of us would have spoken, I suppose, at staff week. Well, one of them. And uh, 
May we have uh, shared some of this Torah. In the meantime, we get to share it with people online. Together, I want to wish everyone a beautiful Shabbat, restful Shabbat. Be healthy, be safe, everyone. And good Shabbat.